do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Checking in with Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, one of the best USDA ag scientists who left and started his own farm and research foundation. What has happened over the last two years since we first chatted? Has traditional science finally started taking regenerative agriculture more seriously? And do we finally see more research into profitability and regen practices? And what about and what is the 1000 Farm Initiative that John is working on right now? This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities, and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Welcome back to another interview. Today, we have back Dr. Jonathan Lundgren, the founder of Blue Dasher's Farms, and I'm going to butcher this foundation name, Ecdysis Foundation. We had him in May 2020. You got it. Which is almost to the day two years ago, which were an interesting two years, to say the least. And we talked about almonds, profitability, grains and profitability, and the connection to regenerative practices. And I think a lot has happened since then, but it's much better to ask it to the man himself. So welcome back, John. <laughs> so good to be here again. Yeah. And... For the people that, of course, I will put the link below um, on the interview we did before, for the people that didn't listen to that, uh, shame on you and go and listen. Not now, but stay here. Um, in a few minutes, how would you describe your your ag research journey and where did you get to where you are now? Also, a few more minutes. I mean, it's always interesting to hear this uh, this this story. Yeah. Um, so I was a, a scientist within the traditional you know, scientific matrix. Uh, I worked for USDA for around... 11 years and I was very good at that world. Um, and then he, I could he's drive not saying that to brag, Iowa. by the way. Uh, just Google him. You, you will see. <laughs> uh, but I could drive through Iowa or Eastern South Dakota and look at acres and acres of corn and soybeans and cattle. And it was like, you know, my research isn't changing anything. Farmers aren't getting better. It's getting worse for farmers. It's getting worse for society. And my research is being used to do that. And so I decided it's time for a fundamental shift. And so I quit. Um, and we started something totally different. We started grassroots style science that's, that's rethinking how science is applied in order to support an evolutionary shift in our food system towards regenerative agriculture. And uh, ever since then, I've been making a lot of mistakes, but having a few wins as well along the way and uh, just been a part of a movement 
that's going on in the United States as well as all over the world right now to save our planet or our place on this planet using our food system. And I think the first major step you took is you said, I have to become a farmer again, or I have to become a farmer first <laughs> yeah. and then a scientist. And that would be good for many other scientists, I would say as well. But th these wins you mentioned, what, what are the, I wouldn't say the highlights, but what were the, 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 the things you look back on now over the last couple of years? And then we'll talk about the last two years, obviously, of, of things you, you like to share the most when somebody asks, okay, what have you been up to? What are the things you like to look back oh. on? Could be the, the, the mistakes as well, obviously. But what are a few things you like yeah. to point to? Well, I think that, you know, the relationships that we're building with farmers are one of the biggest successes and the trust that we're building with farmers and trying to figure out what is the motivators of, of decision making on farms. And, and we like to think, oh, you know, it's, it's all about profit, right? Because, but, Honestly, if, if farmers were really interested and driven by profits, they wouldn't be growing corn and beans. They'd be growing something totally different. And, and so there's some other sociological elements there. And, and cracking that nut has been a really important part of, of this. Um, yeah, just becoming a farmer and our own changes on, on Blue Dasher Farm here in South Dakota. Um, I'm watching that and how that's changed our approach to science and our approach to life has been a really um, fun outcome of the an important outcome of the uh, of this whole initiative. You know, scientists have to be farmers. We can't be addressing farmer needs without experiencing that firsthand. And the relationships and trust that associated with that end up driving a far grander impact of our research than could be attained if we were just working at a normal institution. And so what have been, let's say the last two years, the biggest surprises, what have you learned the most of running the farm alongside doing a lot of research and what has been, because the farm, I think, I'm guessing started five years ago. I don't remember the exact date. It's, it's been relatively mm -hmm. new and, and fresh. And then especially the first five years in any transition are, are full of surprises, let's say. Um, as a farmer, putting your farmer hat on, what have been the, the biggest lessons learned over the last two years since we, since we spoke? Um, uh, it, we became a livestock farm. Uh, we started a, a real focused on crops. That's what I knew and thought was the important thing. And, um, and now we, you know, I think our bread and butter is, is lamb production, pork, poultry, eggs, and honey. Uh, those are the things that uh, we think are the most beneficial for the land as well as for our, ourselves and our community. Those are the things we enjoy producing the most. Um, what triggered that if it's so not profitable? Because you just mentioned farmers are potentially not driven by, or probably not driven by profits alone. What, what triggered that? Because you went into it as a, as a crop farmer, a potentially vegetable farmer, and livestock is very different. What, what was there a moment? What, when did that realization came and say, okay, we need or we want animals on this farm? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think it harkens back to when we got started, one of my friends, uh, who was a farmer, uh, a 75 year old fella, a really good regenerative farmer. Uh, he's like, you know, a farm just doesn't feel like a farm without livestock. And, uh, and I think he was right. You know, there's something fundamentally human about, about being around animals that, 
that uh, I don't know if it's a spiritual thing or you cannot or see it, what, but he's smiling but, a lot when he's talking about animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I don't understand what it is, but there's fundamentally something that we feel connected to when we're raising our animals and caring for those animals. And, um, uh, so I, I really like that aspect of it. The other element that I'm starting to realize more and more is that in order for us, you know, regenerative agriculture isn't really even the answer to our planetary scale problems. It's, it's a, it's a more fundamental sociological shift that needs to happen right now that we need to, as a society, slow down. We need to start growing our own food. We need to start connecting with something because I feel like we're just losing track of where we fit in this world a, a, a anymore. And, and as an artifact of that, this industrialized food system that's, that's having all kinds of problems ends up evolving and a culture ends up evolving that uses currencies that don't make us feel whole. And animals, I've heard a farmer say that the ideal way of living is, is herding animals or sort of moving with the animals in, in their migrations or their, their nomadic uh, lifestyle. And our lifestyle is a bad word here. But do you feel like the shift or the addition of animals on farms is is one of those missing puzzle pieces or one of those to, to to slow down, to force to slow down or to force to ask harder questions, uh, which you don't have to ask if you're doing vegetables or row crops? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, you know, I, I really do. It, and, you know, as a scientist, I can step back and say, okay, well, there's a lot of ways of penciling this out and saying, well, the resilience of the operation is, is improved Fertility. with an additional revenue stream and, and all of these other things, right? And, uh, and, but, and there's a lot of roles that livestock play as a tool for managing vegetation and all this other uh, sort of things. And all of that's true. But then there's also this element of, you know what? Um, I'm connected to this place. Um, it forces me to get out of bed in the middle of winter and go out there and feed the animals. And there's something very mentally stimulating and healthy about that. Um, yeah, there's just, it's, it's bigger than that. And it's harder to put a number on it. And then does it bother you or do you get pushback on the whole do we have to eat them then discussion like the slaughtering like the caring for what about the the one bad day as Joao Saladin mentions it is that do you then put your scientist hat on okay it's fundamental for um, for the land for us for the, the for health for the economics or what, what does the the non-scientist and the farmer hat or the rancher in this case I think with livestock we have to call you a rancher um, hat tells you there or how, how have you how has that been for you over the last two years to also be there with the, with the bad days? 
That's yeah, that is it. I think that's a great way of saying it, that that's a really bad day. Um, and that's not something that I crave or look forward to, but it's a part of this whole thing. And, um, and, you know, I respect the hell out of the animals that are on this farm and treat them as well as I possibly can. Um, and they're a part of me. And so, yeah, that cycle is there. And, and that's another part of being human too, um, is, is understanding that, that there's a, that there's an end and, and accepting that and being a part of that. And, um, yeah. And then when you put your scientist hat on, like how, I wouldn't say like, how does it scale? Because that's such a, but going or looking at the, the current agriculture or animal agriculture system, the, the industrialized CAFO operations, et cetera. How, I wouldn't say how would that transition, but do you see, do you see a transition possible there? Do you see with getting the animals back on the land, caring for the land or caring for the animals? Like how, is there a shift happening with that or is it still very much one side, okay, let's, let's squeeze in as much grain and beans as possible into these animals in a, in a closed system. And then there's some grass fed and finished people on the other side and they're the, the, the vegan movement in, in the other corner and they were all shouting at each other, basically. Like, has something yeah. shifted there in the last two years as you've become a livestock farmer yourself now as well? Do you take a middle ground or do you feel maybe more extreme than before? Like what, what has happened in that? Has it shaped your research even as well? Yeah, it's it, so uh, there was something that happened last year that was really fundamentally changing to me, um, and, it, and it pertains to this question. Um, we started working in regenerative dairy, and, and the first step in that question is, what the hell is regenerative dairy? I mean, what does that look like, right? And And nobody's really tried to define that. And so the first step in that process was me experiencing different dairy operations, me and the scientific staff. And so we started to do some tours of some operations. Alexandra and Farms and things around. like that. Yeah. And going into this, is, it, I mean, there's a ton of large CAFO dairy operations that are springing up in, California, in, in South Dakota. They're spilling in from California because the regulations are so uh, are more stringent there. And South Dakota says... Bring us your KFOs, right? Uh, Why not? And, yeah. <laughs> which is oh, oh, it's it's really disturbing to me. And I can say, you know, man, people who run these operations are are morally challenged. They're obviously disconnected from what they're trying to do uh, or, or to these animals. They can't even picture, you know, a life living in a confinement that they never see green grass, right? They they never get out. And, and so I went in there with that viewpoint and, um, and then I met the farmers that were doing it and these farmers care about their animals and they have automation and technology to try to assess, you know, if there's an injured or sick animal and they try to treat it within that context and they are 100% confined, the confined animal on a dairy or in a CAFO or in a hog yard or anything like that in the animal, it's the farmer. They are stuck. They are saddled with debt for generations because somebody convinced them. 
the CAFO builder, convinced them that this would be a good business decision. And for the rest of their lives, they are trying to dig themselves out of that horrendous debt. And I felt, I, I felt differently about that, that I wanted to be there to give another option and to try to figure out how to help these people. If one of those milking machines goes down for even a day or two, the whole system starts to break, right? It's, they can't go anywhere. They can't. And so how are the conversations with them then? Crippling. Like what, what do you talk about? I mean, they, they must have Googled you before you came and you come with very different operations as well, let's say. Like what, what are they, yeah. are they curious? Are they asking questions or maybe they don't want to see because it just make you very sad if you're locked into something and you see, I would say the green grass outside, but you see other options. It, it's not, it could also be very, very depressing. Well, you know, I think admitting, you know, that, that you're trapped and that your children are trapped. Um, that's a, they can admit it on one hand, but not understand that there's an alternative. And, and so that's, that's kind of the confinement, I guess, is that there. And have you seen I alternatives? Mean, when we talked about, have you seen other, like you visited multiple ones, yeah. I'm imagining multiple styles or systems and were the ones yeah, that made you, made you happy yeah. and made you, even though the dairy gets always the, the huge pushback of, like you're like, wouldn't we, should we even be consuming milk because of the, the whole mother calf, uh, let's say challenge. And, and like, what do you see there? And like the best performing or the best ones you, you visited, how do they approach that tension or that dynamic? Um, you know, the best ones have animals that are on green grass every day. Um, and, and we literally saw, we went from that CAFO dairy to a small pasture dairy operation uh, where they they grow local milk for their community that's raw milk. And the animals were literally like jaunting and, and, and running through the pasture. They looked like totally different animals, right? Uh, and their calves were in association with them. Um, and And yeah, it was just a, it was a totally different ball game, uh, but the scale was much smaller. And and the more that I think about this, the more I, you know, we have to understand that that we need a lot more farmers, and we need to be connected to our own food production. I mean, when you think about scaling, like farm to school or farm to uh, local communities or something like that. When you have millions of people aggregated, not all of those people can learn their farmers. I mean, when you think about, okay, if you've got 400 kids in a small elementary school or something like that, that's 400 carrots a day that you need to produce. And, and the scale that's needed there, suddenly you start thinking, okay, how do you accomplish this? And I think more people need to grow food. And so why aren't we in a sense? I mean, it's, it seems to be happening as well. Is that partly that we, we don't think there's a career there? We, I mean, people in the city, let, let's quote unquote, let's, let's generalize here, but like what, what would be needed to unlock, um, 
many more people, let's go from 1%, I think in the US is involved in farming to 10%. Like what would be needed to do that? Or do you have any ideas on that? Maybe you say, I don't know. This is an impossible no, we question. We think about these issues every day. Uh, we have conversations here in our research team every day, our scientific team. And that's just a part of our culture, right? Is, is There's enough people throwing their hands up saying, I don't know. We need somebody that's doing something. And, uh, you know, steps in this process are, number one, It again, it harkens back to this concept of our society needs to, <laughs> needs to change. Uh, our best farm sales was the day after after COVID was announced uh, because people weren't running to the fast food restaurants. Uh, they were thinking about cooking. They were thinking and about some, local Some production. of that stuck like after and the end of yeah. like, because I saw some of these things obviously went 300%, et cetera. And, and most of them, something stayed there. Not, a, not all, but many of the direct-to-consumer to ones and not direct to restaurant ones. I mean, that was a, that's a difficult business. Um, although it's coming back, but direct to consumer, some of that state, is that the same with you? Are you now operating at a higher level of sales? Yeah, I think we are. And, and, um, people are understanding that a little bit more too. Uh, it did, you know, I mean, society resumed its, its rat race, but at a different pace, I think. Um, there's a larger proportion of the United States population that are just slowing down and not going back to work, realizing that they were working to pay somebody else to raise their children, for example, or to um, grow their food. Yeah. And yeah, or to grow their their food. And and that shift has I think is going to amplify. I think there was a there was a lie that was told to society that we believed, and that was that the currency that was most important was money. And there's a lot of other currencies that that make us feel like ourselves, like like human beings. That, and that's not saying that money isn't important or anything like. that. Says the guy that, that the only one that ever did research on profitability and regenerate. But yeah, that doesn't mean that know, profit, that profit is the only thing that drives you. Obviously. So isn't that isn't that interesting? I mean, that's been a real evolution over the last two years for us. Uh, Sure, we can provide that those numbers, but which we, are very compelling. Let's let's not. I mean, anybody that's interested, ah, oh, can it be profitable? Said, go and look at at the papers. They are extremely yeah, compelling. Twice as profitable, and we're about to have one on rangelands coming out, and and we have uh, cash grain systems in the northern plains coming out. Uh, we're in vineyards and cherries and apples and and all across the United States, a thousand farms we're going to be visiting. And we'll be doing full economic analyses on each of these things, right? And, and in all these different crops, the general, because I always say, obviously, you look at higher profitability or at least the same lower volatility, lower costs. Is that a general the, or does it really depend on the crop or is that the general, say, the, the red thread that goes through all of these when you're looking at all of these different crops and different contexts, et cetera, if you had to summarize it? What would be there? There is there a connection between regen practices and well, done well, obviously, and and profitability. Yeah, um, and so essentially, it's <laughs> let's if we'd really dumb it down, it's lower input costs and greater profits, and and depending on the system that you're looking at, the relative contributions to the overall profitability are 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 different. Like for corn. 
lowering input costs was the primary reason for the overall net profitability increasing. Um, in almonds, you know, the, the, you didn't lose money by going regenerative, but you did gain money based on premiums that are associated with that, um, the end product. And so it depends, but yeah, it's the, the bottom line, depends, grows. but it's always net, net profitability is always higher. Yeah. And we talked about it as well last time on the almond side. I remember like a small, of course, it's not all about and it shouldn't be about profitability but a small increase there could mean your children stay on the farm and a small increase on these yeah. things mean a fundamental difference if you're so at the edge in terms of margins and profitability 10k 20k or whatever per year and some makes an enormous difference because somebody can stay and makes an enormous difference because new energy comes in it makes an enormous difference to 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 drive this or, or gets other currency which means is which could be family time around or which whatever other currencies we we come up with so it is fundamental to i think to to dispel the myth of this is all nice and fun but only if you are a rich landholder that doesn't have to live of of, right. of the farm you can do these kind of hobbies that's the that's the like yeah that's not true no it's not that at all right it's a, it is you know it's the only way that we're going to our farming community is going to remain profitable. And how, what I holds mean, the rest back? Like if this data is is available, I remember that almond farmers finally won, like the two farmer, like one of the two you looked at, visited the other one and, and looked at the profitability or looked at the pest number, sorry, and saw that even though he sprayed five times a year, did exactly what the universities told him, he had the same amount of pests as his neighbor who never sprayed. Like that was a trigger moment. Like what other trigger moments do we need if this if the data is so clear what is holding us back to to seriously scale or is it happening and we're just not seeing it yet because it's so much it's like an underground movement um you know that one farmer just to just take one step back uh in year one or after that study that we published um he couldn't believe it right but he changed 160 acres over to regenerative the next year and now he's changed his entire 1000 acre almond operation to regenerative. So what is it that inspires those changes? The thing that we've had to realize is that it's that we have to have the data, but it's not sufficient. And we when we got started, I mean, we can have that conversation. Two years ago, regenerative was a dirty word in almonds. I mean, you couldn't go into the Central Valley of California and talk about regenerative because regenerative doesn't work here, right? Um, like it's a thing. And it's even also after funny. seeing yeah. the data, yeah. it, right, right. The, the data, even after the data came out that said it was twice as profitable and all these other wonderful metrics, carbon sequestration, life yeah. promotion, water is huge out there. That wasn't enough, right? Regenerative still isn't okay. You know what changed is we had a presence there. The scientists would show up and we would talk to the farmers and we weren't selling them anything, right? Instantly, the farmer, when you walk onto a farmer's field or into their office, they're wondering, what's this guy going to sell me? And suddenly they look like, oh, you want to give us, you know, $7,500 worth of free information about our farm because you you just want to help? That that, <laughs> that was like a weird, weird thing. Yeah, I wouldn't trust it either, but yeah. Uh, we had a field day a couple months ago 
320 people from up and down the Central Valley came to that field day, and it was regenerative almonds. The almond board showed up even. And, uh, and was there a lot of skepticism? We had that. Or was there in, in real interest? Yeah. There was real interest, and we're working with some of the largest almond producers in the state now, helping them to make a transition. And when they say, you know, this can't work, you know, I'm not going to make that management, it's like, all right, to hell with you then. You know what? We don't have time for this. If you're serious about change, we'll work with you. But if you're not, don't waste our time. Um, and and you know what? <laughs> what I told them uh, that really got their attention is uh, regenerative agriculture is the future of your industry. You can either change and evolve with it or you can go out of business. And I don't care one way or the other. But I'll be there if you're interested in making that change. Um, that's, yep, they got that. And, and They're not used to somebody saying that. No, because everybody so, tries uh, to sell them something, obviously. And has the last, right, like, right. I would say, six months of, of political tension, and obviously the war we're in now, um, especially around input prices, like, has that, we all expected, or maybe I expected that that would start some serious conversations about, high input driven extractive agriculture, like very, very fragile because inputs come apart from the fact that they're extremely damaging and, and all of that, but also just very fragile because they come from far and support certain regimes that we're, we're not too happy about. Let's say has that like have the last months be more intensive in terms of inbound calls. People are interested, people that were a bit on the fence of this weird biofertilizer stuff and compost and et cetera, like suddenly are like, let me give it a try because these prices are not sustainable or has that not happened yet? Um, you know, we're hearing about that. We're making that a part of our dialogue, you know, for it hasn't really changed anything except maybe in terms of magnitude, but the same trends were there. Input costs. I mean, farmers haven't made more money uh, over the last several years. It, it's it, input costs continue to rise profits, you know, There's a lot more money being made off of farming, but it isn't about from the farmers. It, it, it's about all of the other people that have come in to make money off of these farmers. And uh, and so as input costs rise, uh, the farmers aren't, yeah, I mean, it, prices can go up, right? Corn and soybean prices are through the roof right now, but farmers aren't going to make more money. They're going to put it all into the inputs. And so these companies that are that are parasitizing the farmers are are making a ton of cash, but that isn't okay, right? And so what what is it? You mentioned it before, but let's let's unpack it a bit. The one thousand farm initiative to I think it's, it feels really to bring this type of research to a whole new level and a whole new scale because one thousand sounds like a lot. Um, what was the the reasoning or the thought behind it, and and what is this this initiative, and how? And then we talk about how people can get involved, obviously. Sure. Um, so we, you know, we're on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> we're looking over, and um, and there's a real sense of urgency. Um, we just drove down to Kansas City to visit some family this weekend, and we watched the dust blow the entire way down. Um, Oklahoma, Kansas right now are burning. Uh, Colorado burned last year. We had to wear masks in South Dakota because Manitoba was burning. This is, this is end of days kind of shit going on right now. 
All right. Um, and so we decided, you know, we, we know what the answer is. How do we get this done? How do we move the ball down the field much more quickly? And, um, uh, we know the style of science that we're doing is, is something that only we know how to do and let's amp it up. And so we decided to run a full systems assessment on a thousand farms per year around North America with plans to upgrade this or upscale this globally, um, where we deploy scientific teams to measure entire systems, so deep carbon, uh, soil, physical, chemical properties, water, uh, invertebrates, microbes, plants, birds, mammals, nutrient density of the foods, economics on each of these fields, a thousand fields per year across the country to show or to ask, does regen work no matter what you grow, where you grow it? Farmers are developing systems of regenerative agriculture. How can we use empirical assessments to make roadmaps to remove risks associated with this transition process? And then does, does, does Regen deliver on its promises? Is this the solution to climate change that people are talking about? And does it reverse desertification? Does it, does it improve rural community status? And, um, so we've been, we've done these assessments on, more than a hundred farms or this year already. And it's on and a farm level. So around. not just on a field level, but on a farm scale or depending yeah. on, on the farm. I'm imagining our experimental unit is the field. Um, but yeah, just because we have to, a farm ends up becoming a much more complicated, um, endeavor, but yeah, this should scale to the whole farm. So, you know, once you start incorporating the different elements of it. But, and, and so, um, how soon do you want to get get to a thousand? So a thousand this year, a thousand fields on farms. Oh, on, yeah, you're on route for that. We're on 500 farms this year, and we'll be on a thousand farms per year next year through 2026 or so, and then we'll be monitoring those transition farms for up to 10 years. So, um, but we'll be yeah. When we come out of a field, we have almost all of the data in hand, so we can you give that back free for the farmers. Um, and then we can consolidate it. It's all anonymized, right? None of the farmer's information is associated with it, but then we can kind of give that off to, uh, uh, to decision makers, policy makers, people that are coming up with verification ideas for regen, people that are um, trying to conduct forecasting models on carbon or, or, or what have you. Uh, we, We've got ground truth data that on a, on a scale that's never even been attempted before. And have you already seen like what are the first? I wouldn't say results, but first things you've seen in this one hundred farms or farm fields until now. Is there something you can you can share on surprises or non surprises you've seen until now? Um, you know the consistencies of, across these systems. I mean, you can walk into, but they're yeah. Um, we're also, um, in terms of results, right? I mean, you go onto a regenerative field and, you know, life is just through the roof compared to its conventional counterpart. And that's, that's really what you do as well. You look like a, a conventional counterpart or conventional neighbor. Yeah, like you yeah, can... yeah. That's our control group. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So those are our controls. We're, we're benchmarking everything against, against conventional, successful conventional, um, operations. Um, but the differences are palpable and the solutions are palpable. What does palpable um, mean? Like you, available? You can, you can feel it. You can, you can taste feel it. them. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, as a scientist, I have to turn everything that I'm seeing into a number. And that's hard sometimes. I mean, you walk onto a regenerative uh, almond operation in the middle of the hottest part of the Central Valley and where they tell us that regen won't work. And you can, I mean, the Central Valley used to be a wetland and now it's a desert. And, and you walk onto one of these farms and the temperature is cooler and you you hear birds in the air and you you can smell life and and, and turning that into a number is really so what do you do then you can walk As, away what do you do that. john how do you turn it into a number that then we can send to policymakers? we take redundant metrics of measurements of each of these different facets of the system and consolidate it but boy when that won't that be nice when we can consolidate that into an index of some sort of of environmental quality or something based on you know how many birds how many bugs it's it's all trends and scales together even the profitability is, is scales with how much life you have on that farm so are there really no trade-offs there like do you have you seen trade-offs there maybe on the speed of the transition or on the the, the complexity if you Maybe that's not even possible, but overcomplexify. Have you seen any any trade-offs in in the signals so far or the results so far? Uh, no. It's <laughs> so just a, an amazing it's, it's good a, good good story, basically. It's crazy how consistent it is across all of these different elements of the system. Um, just crazy. Does it make you suspicious as a scientist putting your scientist hat on? Too good mm -mm. to be true. No, it no? makes total sense. It, it makes total sense. Uh, this is from an ecological standpoint, this, this is the answer to planetary scale problems. Um, and when you walk away from that almond orchard I was talking about and saying to yourself, you know what? We can, we can turn this back into a wetland if we strategize this correctly. Um, or we can actually, you know, solve climate change and the, the offset all of our carbon emissions in the central valley or of California using the central valley um because that's what you, it suggests now because we see a lot of pushback from certain circles i um, have to mention on this carbon piece um we see a lot of hype i think as well which is i think good to a certain extent because suddenly people realize that there used to be a lot of carbon in the soil and it could potentially go back but also a lot of cowboys standing up setting up companies selling very shady credits and less shady credits and, and all of that like what gives you hope on that carbon piece looking at the science and looking at the fields you visited i think it's the only answer to the carbon crisis right uh, and and you know if we make this a dialogue about carbon then we're losing before we start because we have to understand that the that really all carbon is is an artifact of life And so if we establish an incentivization program that's focused on carbon instead of on promoting life on a farm, you're going to lose. Uh, there's too many cheaters that are going to move in and try to take advantage of that system. And that's what got us into this mess to begin with. Um, but if you focus those incentive programs on promoting plant and animal life on your farms or microbial life, um, 
Can't lose. You can cheat. Can't cheat. With life. And can't so how cheat. would you how would you shape a system like that? If somebody says, Okay, John, I would give you the power to to shape, let's say, an ecosystem service, even though the word is horrible. Um system where we're gonna sell let's say ecosystem services to others in a in a forced market, like everybody has to. Like how would you shape what would you measure? It's got to be reductionist because we cannot measure everything. We cannot actually ma- ma- measure the complexity of life, and that's okay as long as we acknowledge that. Like, what would you? What would be good proxies for you if it's not carbon? You know, I don't know that that's even a question for us um, because uh, what's happening right now is an evolution of, of our food system, right? Um, under the current constraints to our society and our planet and our food system, the current system is going to die. It's going to implode. It, it, we're so close to it that it's really alarming. And the only way that we're going to survive is with regenerative agriculture. And so the regenerative food systems, because of our profit analysis, they don't have to have incentive programs, right? I mean, if those incentive programs can make it more attractive to change or something like this. Then or or de-risk, like fine. you mentioned before, the transition risk. Yeah, we could even it, be in your hat, obviously. It doesn't have to be real risk, but if it's yeah, perceived it's risk. perceived risk, right, yeah. Um, and that that's fine, but but it's not necessary. Um, and, and I think that that's what... Yeah, as as additional farms fail, the only ones that are going to be standing are the regenerative ones, and and so, yeah, from our perspective, do you incentivize life or carbon or whatever? No, I don't think you need to incentivize any of it. You just need to uh, you need to stop giving incentives to to poor practices and uh, remove some of the food safety issues or, the, or laws and things like this that are real hindrances, remove crop insurance um, to, that are supporting a, a dead and, and broken system. And, and you mentioned we compare to successful conventional ones. Do you see even the successful conventional ones struggling or, or close to the edge or are Let's say the top in the conventional extractive ones are, are probably the last ones standing of that sector, or how do you, or they are they even they on the edge, or are they looking at transitioning as the almond grower we we talked about before? You know, some of them are looking at transitioning, and some of them aren't. Some, of, and that's always the way with society, right? Um, the uh, you know our economic analysis isn't complete. We don't do whole farm analyses or anything like this. We do we we focus kind of the ins and outs as almost a checkbook balancing operation for a particular field operation, and that tells us the relative profitability in that one snapshot. Um, what it doesn't reflect is the is the brittleness of of a larger operation. And the we had one farmer on a farmer friend of mine say, you know, I am a farmer. Every year, I borrow $800,000 to make $850,000. And our economic analysis doesn't reflect that. You know, it doesn't reflect where people are at. How on earth, if a corn, if, a, if an acre of land is $10,000 an acre, which it is pretty often around our area and, and around there, how on earth, even with the best corn prices, would you 
ever in your lifetime pay that off. And our farming community is so overextended on debt and just trying to squeeze out being able to pay that mortgage in order to keep the chemical companies and the seed companies and all the other companies that are making money off of them in business. We're going to break down mentally before we break down economically, but I have a feeling both of those things are already happening. And, and so what will happen? Will they collapse or one-on-one? One, and then will the land prices collapse as well and, and give access to a whole new generation? Or will they stay high and will the, the largest one surviving that still has an okay relationship with the bank buy the neighbor and keep getting bigger until it holds? Like what, what is needed? Do need, prices need to come down at some point to to reflect the real carrying capacity. Yeah, I think that that's going to happen. And right now, what's uh, you end up seeing corporate ownership and investment firms buying land and, and inflating prices, land prices, keeping them inflated. Um, you see more elderly farmers with that have some equity uh, reinvesting that equity back into land, but not being able to really pay that. Um, and, and so the land prices are artificially swollen and that bubble continues to swell, but it will burst and, and it's going to be painful to watch, but we're real close to that right now. And when that happens, you know, uh, there is a lot of young farmers that are interested in coming in and turns out you don't need 190 million acres to produce food to pay our to, to feed our society. You don't need that much land. Um, if you grow food. Instead of feed. Yeah. And so what are you hoping to establish? Like even this year with 500 farms to, to start a bigger debate on these crop insurance, on the subsidies, on like the, the, the land prices as in general, or just to, to publish these re results and then hope it, it, it sticks somewhere? Like, what, what are you going to do with the results even this year? Um, you know, at the end of this year, we'll have um, a, a pretty darn good systems level assessments, including economics on, on I don't know, three, four hundred established contrasts around the U.S. Plus, That's a pretty plus, good data Plus set. like a, counter, a control group next to it in most cases. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good con, that's a pretty good sample size to make some assertions, multi-geographies, multi-food um, systems, you know, orchards, cash grains, vegetables, all of these sorts of things to kind of say, okay, uh, here's the, here's the big punch, right? Here's the big punch of, does this work? Yeah, I'm sorry, but it does. And it, and I'm not sorry, actually. It, it should. Uh, this is the answer to a lot of things. And so the data is, it's going to support that. I mean, that's based on our previous experience, not my ideology. Um, what are so, your traditional uh, colleagues nice... in like the university world or in the, the ag, traditional agri, not even traditional, let's say the, the rest of the ag industry research community think has that changed their their approach to to you and your work in general of course of the foundation over the last years has it been more collaborative or is it really 
like do, do they start to see the potential of this as more research keeps coming out telling the same story like look it works there's a lot of potential like let's let's not um let's not keep ignoring it have you seen a shift in the scientific world around this type of work um yeah i think that um well you've seen a lot of uh, there's a lot of greenwashing too. And, and so you see university departments that, you know, open up some, they see this as a cash cow. And so they, they end up forging departments in regenerative systems or in all this other things, but they don't really understand um, what's needed here. Um, the style of science that Ectisis does, which is driven by farmers and on farm and a multi geography, multi-food uh, systems, you know, we can cross a lot of barriers that other institutions are constrained by. Uh, opens up a lot of opportunities for us um, to kind of shape the scientific community. Um, when we got into almonds, nobody was working on regenerative almond production. Uh, they were thinking about small components. By the time we this year, I mean, there's four at least four regenerative almond research operations that are going on, or projects that are going on, and um, so the 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 other research institutions do fall in line. It just takes somebody to show them what what's what it's done, and that's kind of our role at Ecdysis. Is our new slogan is "We're the pebble that starts the avalanche." And the rest of the world, like what, what have you seen beyond the US, beyond North America? Are you in touch with other institutions that are doing similar work? Like what is your, if you have a view, your view on, on beyond the borders or across the ocean or across to the south, to the east, to the west, et cetera? What have you seen there? Have you been in touch with many or not? What, what has been your, your connection to the rest of the world? You know, I think it's a similar situation around the world as we have in the United States. This is, movement is not being led by the research community or the scientific community or the governments. This research or this movement is being led by farmers, and there's extremely um, successful farming operations that are regenerative in every habitat that that you visit. Um, even in the United States, that's been an interesting thing. You know, we when we started Thousand Farms, we posted a database where people could register their farm. And within within a couple of weeks, we had almost 900 some farms that were registered from the United States and even some from outside of our borders. You know what that means? I mean, if in a typical crowdfunding situation or something, if you get 10% of people to click on the link and of those 10% to actually do something like register themselves or something like that that's pretty good response rate so you're suggesting that there's 100x there's, yeah there's thousands of regenerative farms just in the united states alone that are operating under the radar screen that are not being served by anybody in terms of science or or policies or anything like that there's a lot going on and and maybe our one of our jobs is to help highlight that so how can people get involved? What do you need um, to, to make this 1,000 potentially much more farm initiative uh, uh, an even bigger success? Um, if, if you have a, a farm that you're interested in um, 
getting involved in this. Uh, we're looking for the leaders in regenerative and those folks that are trying to transition. Um, so if they're just in their infancy, we want them to register. It takes about two minutes. Go to the ecdysis.bio website. You'll see the link. Really doesn't take any time. It doesn't hurt you a bit. So that's the first step. Um, it costs us about $7,500 per field to do this analysis, and we're trying to keep it free for the farmers. So if there's uh, philanthropic opportunities or grant opportunities that can help to sponsor farms, um, this is going to be one of the most powerful research experiments in human history, I think. I truly believe that. And, and so please help support that. We can really use the help. So get this involved with your networks. Help coordinate clusters of farms because that's how we keep the price down is by, is by having clusters. We can't go out into the middle of nowhere in Nebraska and have one farm, right? We have to try to strategize this a little bit. So definitely get in touch. I'll put the links below as well. If you want to be on the research side and if you want to, obviously, if you have a foundation, any grant capacity, anything helps in this case, but especially if you have larger capacity, it would help if you, you get involved. Um, and I think with that, what, what is, you, know, you mentioned a lot of research that's coming out over the next years. I'm, I'm thinking, what, what are you most excited about that's coming? say in the next months, what are you busy with now? Is there anything that that's almost ready to to be released just to to finish up this conversation? It's not the last one we'll have. I'm, I'm pretty sure on that, but just to to end with a, or or an interesting surprise over the last weeks in in, in research or in farm visits you've done. What 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 is the first thing that comes in mind? The first story that you would like to end this with? Yeah, there's two things. Number one is that, you know, we have a couple of three year transition stories that are starting to come out because we've been monitoring the same farms up in Canada and down in Kansas and the rate of changes and, and magnitude of change that's, uh, we've seen in just one year is pretty profound. Um, so there, this, this isn't going to be as risky as we thought it was. And they'll come out as case studies other, or as research? Like what, how do you yeah, we'll see we'll them be publishing those. Okay. We'll be submitting those within the next couple of months. Um, and then uh, looking at birds as well as invertebrates and things and how those change in relation to, to, uh, to um, soil quality and, and all those other wonderful things. So. And then the other thing is, you know, this <laughs> Thousand Farms Initiative is exposing us, you know, like getting our hands dirty on just about every food system in every region on a continent. And, and the stories that are involved there really get me excited about sharing, you know, the success stories of these farmers, but in the personal stories of the people that are really making a change. So we're exposing ourselves to our food system and an intimacy and scale that has never been, I don't think anybody else has that. Um, and, but then also we're studying this at a, at a key pivotal point in human history of, of the evolution of our food system and a real change. And so that's, I think that that telling that story is going to be really fun for us. And probably a key point and I wouldn't say even uh, in human evolution as well or the earth evolution not just not just the food system this touches as as we mentioned at the beginning absolutely everything and and it ha we have to slow down and we have to start somewhere with food probably yeah I think it's a really good way of starting
And with that, I want to thank you so much for your time. Be conscious of your time as well. And, and thank you for sharing this morning and, and hopefully a lot of interesting case studies, a lot of interesting stories uh, backed by science, backed by, by non-reductionist science to, to give wings to, to this movement and this transition. Thank you so much for, of course, the work you do and coming on here for the second time to, to share. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for giving us some time. Thank you so much for listening all the way till the end. For the show notes and links discussed, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash post. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.